All right, please take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 49 with me. Since Jeremiah 46, we have been exploring God's declarations of judgment against the Gentile world. Last time we were together, we considered Moab, which was somewhat unique in character as opposed to Egypt and Philistia before it, in that Moab had a more direct relationship with Israel. They were descendants of the eldest daughter of Lot. And as we walked through the judgment against Moab, we then connected their sin to the teachings of Paul in Romans chapter 1. And we connected what we saw in Moab, this idea that they became comfortable resting upon their lees. The, the, the idea of resting upon their lees is that uh, as they found sin in their midst, they became comfortable in their sin rather than uh, living in a spirit of repentance, living in that, that, that spirit of renewal. And in that they became comfortable, they began to spiral down uh, into that, that spiral of sin that we can see so clearly articulated in Romans chapter 1. That as one seeks uh, unto themselves and denies the eternal power and Godhead of God, one becomes vain in his own imagination, his foolish heart is darkened, and then professing himself to be wise, he becomes a fool. Now this week we're going to continue and we're going to see several more nations, judgment upon a number of Gentile nations, no, none of them getting nearly the amount of time that Moab did last week. And we begin this week with the, um, with the, the, the sibling, really, of Moab, that being the Ammonites. In chapter 49, verse 1, the Bible says, Concerning the Ammonites, thus saith the Lord, hath Israel no sons? Hath he no heir? Why then doth their king inherit Gad? And his people dwell in his cities. So God begins his declaration of judgment against the Ammonites for their possession of the land that had been given to the tribe of Gad. To this end, the Lord asks Ammon, Does Israel lack sons so that your king feels as though he has the right to take the land of Gad from Israel to dwell in the cities that are Israel's by right? Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, last week we discussed the unique relationship between Moab and Israel, and Moab having descended from the elder daughter of Lot. We also mentioned last week, and we mentioned again on Tuesday evening, that Ammon shares this relationship also. The Ammonites, according to Genesis chapter 19, verse 38, descended from the younger daughter of Lot. So Moab was the name of the son of the elder daughter that she had with her father Lot, and Ammon was the name of the younger son that, that the younger, or the, the son that the younger daughter had with her father, uh, the, the daughter of Lot had with her father. And, and like with Moab, so too with Ammon, Deuteronomy 23 tells us that they were strictly forbidden from entering into the congregation of the Lord even unto the 10th generation. Deuteronomy 23.3 tells us this, that because they did not welcome their brethren, the nation of Israel, into the land when they came out of Egypt, so they would have this um, charge placed against them. Now remember, in Tuesday, Tuesday night, for those of you that were there, we talked about Jephthah, and he interacted with the, with the Ammonites. And the Ammonites... Sins against Israel, if you will, uh, to that point had not been nearly egregious, as egregious as Moab. Perhaps that is the reason in that Moab has been significantly uh, more hostile against Israel uh, throughout history than Ammon. Perhaps that is why Moab received so much time as it related to their condemnation and their judgment. 
Now, the historical event that we find recorded here in verse 1 relates directly to the overthrow of Judah by Babylon. Like with Moab, so too with Ammon, that these nations joined with the Chaldeans and the Syrians to overthrow Judah. We read this in 2 Kings 24, verse 2, where the Bible says, And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Ammon and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. So history records that the nation of Ammon took the region just adjacent to its own land, which does happen to be the region that Gad had acquired uh, or had been given by the Lord. In doing so, they thought they were strategically winning more land. But in fact, what they were doing is they were settling their own judgment. What they were doing is they were taking land that God had reserved for his people and God had specifically told Israel they could not take Ammon's land. And yet here they are taking Israel's land and thus they must be judged. So Moab and Ammon, brothers in history or cousins really in history, become brothers in judgment not only as we read here in Jeremiah 48 and 49, but we can see it in other prophets as well. Perhaps the most concise and clear of these being in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where the Bible says, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. And so it is that the words of Jeremiah are confirmed throughout the prophets as we see here in the book of Zephaniah, both against Moab and against Ammon. We continue in verses 2 through 4 where the Bible says, uh, Jeremiah 49, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will cause an alarm of war to be heard in Rabbah of the Ammonites, and it shall be a desolate heap, and her daughter shall be burned with fire. Then shall Israel be heir unto them that were his heirs, saith the Lord. Howl, O Eshbon, for Ai is spoiled. Cry, ye daughters of Rabbah, gird you with sackcloth, lament and run to and fro by the hedges, for their king shall go into captivity, and his priests and his princes together. Wherefore gloriest thou in the valleys, thy flowing valley, O backsliding daughter, that trusted in her treasure, saying, Who shall come unto me? So God says that the days are coming when Rabbah of the Ammonites, one of their chief cities, would sound the alarm of war. That war was, uh, was coming to them, and it was coming from the nation of Babylon. So God is going to use Babylon to judge Ammon, to judge Moab, just as he was going to use Babylon to judge Judah and Egypt and Philistia. And we'll see the same with Edom, and we'll see the same with Kedar, and we'll see the same with any number of other nations, Tyre and Sidon and Syria, throughout the course of this evening. In verse 3, we find Moab and Ammon paired in this judgment again, though Moab received all that attention in chapter 48. And in this, we perhaps see a timetable for their fall as well. God speaks of Heshbon, which is a city that had been possessed by Moab and calls for them to howl. The idea of crying out in sorrow. Remember, we considered Heshbon last week as kind of that base of operations for Babylon by which they would consume the, the nation of Moab. 
and, and there to howl because Ai, the city of Ammon, is fallen. The obvious implication being that next would come Rabbah, and then it would come Heshbon, and then would come the rest of Moab. So we can actually trace through this verse a, a movement of Babylon as they come from the, the north, and they, they pass through Ammon, and they hit Ai on their way to Rabbah, and then they go to Heshbon, and then they, they from Heshbon, uh, go through the land of Moab. To this end, God asks in verse 4, why glory in your valleys? Valleys were often a place uh, well recognized for some measure of protection if they were surrounded by mountain ranges and they could rest safe in the valley uh, beneath. It would be protection from a lot of storms. It could be protection from a lot of enemies as well. He says, why glory in the valleys? Why place your confidence in your location, thinking that you are well fortified and thus you are safe? There is no such thing as being fortified against the Lord. You can be fortified against a lot of enemies, but you cannot be fortified against the Lord any more than you can hide from the Lord. And we know that that's not possible either. Psalm 139 reminds us that darkness and light are both alike unto the Lord. That God will not be opposed, that His will cannot be thwarted. It is for us then to fear the Lord, to align with Him, for God's will will be done. But all would not be lost for the descendants of Lot. Remember last week as we considered Moab, we saw that those last few verses in chapter 48 were verses of mercy. And they were verses of, uh, verses of mercy, presumably because of the unique relationship that Moab had with Israel. And we see this with many of the, the descendants of those who were related to, to Israel or at least related to Abraham in some way. We see it with Moab. We see it with Ammon. We see it to an extent as well with Edom, who was, of course, from Esau. So we read in verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will bring a fear upon thee, saith the Lord God of hosts, from all those that be about thee, and ye shall be driven out every man right forth, and none shall gather up him that wandereth. And afterward I will bring again the captivity of the children of Ammon, saith the Lord. So God says with Ammon, just as he said with Moab, that there would be a scattering, that they would be driven, but then at the end he says, I will bring again the captivity of the children of Ammon. We read last time in Daniel chapter 11, verse 41 of end times prophecy, how Edom, Moab, and Ammon would be the three nations that were not delivered into the hand of the prince that would come, who we call Antichrist. We see in Daniel 11 a promise that Edom, Ammon, and Moab would find a measure of mercy with the Lord. We saw that last week with Moab. We see it this week with Ammon. We would expect the same of Edom. And we find, again, a beautiful and an amazing consistency, even in the, the, the nuances, the minutia of these scriptural promises. God will be faithful to the children of Lot, who was a just man, just as he was faithful to Jacob and Jacob's brother, Esau. They have a place in God's plan. They have a place in God's mercy. And this leads us to the brother of Jacob. This leads us to Esau, also known as Edom. Verses 7 and 8. Concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Taman? Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? Flee ye, turn back, dwell deep, O inhabitants of Dedan. 
for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will visit him. As God describes the nation of Edom, he paints a picture of a nation that has lost its bearings upon reality. God asks, is there no more wisdom in Teman? Do you not have any bearings anymore on what is reality? And amid this, the Lord says, I'm coming and I will visit you. So he calls for the inhabitants of Dedan to flee because Esau's judgment is coming. Now remember... That the, name, uh, that the name went from Esau, or from Edom to Esau. Esau was his birth name, so it's from Esau to Edom, excuse me. Esau was Esau's birth name, right? But he was called Edom. And he was called Edom, it's a word which means red, because according to Genesis 25, verse 30, after selling his birthright for a mess, a mess of red pottage, he began to be called Edom. It is also worth noting that when Esau was born, the scriptures were careful to describe him as coming out as red all over like a hairy garment. So he was presumably a redhead. He was uh, a very hairy man. And he also is called Edom because of that mess of red pottage which, for which he sold his birthright. So God continues in verses 9 through 11. If grape gatherers come to thee, would not they leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, they will destroy till they have enough. But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His seed is spoiled, and his brethren and his neighbors, and he is not. Leave thy fatherless children. I will preserve them alive, and let thy widows trust in me. So God seeks to connect the severity of his judgment to that of other gleanings or other fleecings. He is likening the judgment that he is about to bring on Moab to the, the harvesting of grapes or um, to a thief entering into a household or into an abode. He says, if grape gatherers come, they will glean, but leave something left. If thieves come, they will steal and destroy, but perhaps not everything. They will steal and destroy until they feel like they have enough, until they have everything they want or everything they can carry, at which point they'll leave the rest behind. In much the same way, God says Esau will be judged, they will be spoiled, they will be exposed, they will be made vulnerable, yet, notice again the mercy, this is Edom, so there's mercy, yet God says in his characteristic mercy, he will preserve the innocent regularly characterized in the scriptures as the widows and orphans. He will preserve the innocent alive. And he says, let their widows trust in me. For indeed, God has a heart for the innocent. He always has. It's reflected throughout the scriptures, even upon the nations of whom there is judgment. We find this even in Jonah, do we not? That as Jonah complains and gripes about the fact that God has not destroyed the city, God appeals to the fact that there's 120,000 children that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle, right? The innocent find divine mercy with the Lord. Before moving on, it's worth noting that this is certainly not the only time God uses this very picture of grape gatherers and thieves to appeal to Edom for repentance. Obadiah was an interesting prophet, a prophet specifically commissioned to Edom. And in the prophecies of Obadiah, Obadiah says the same thing that Jeremiah does almost verbatim. Obadiah chapter 1, verse 5. 
Obadiah says, if thieves come to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they have enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? Just like with any number of other nations, Jeremiah gives but a small taste of God's message to the Gentiles. And if you want to learn more about God's message to Edom, read Obadiah. It's a very interesting prophetic book. We continue in verses 12 and 13 because that's not our context this evening. Verses 12 and 13, the Bible says this, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, they whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunken. And art thou he that shall altogether go unpunished? Thou shalt not go unpunished, but thou shalt surely drink of it. For I have sworn by myself, saith the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. And all the cities thereof shall be perpetual wastes. God says something here which is very important on principle. He tells the nation, which by virtue of being the son of Isaac, has a place of favor with the Lord. And he tells them that it was not theirs to drink of this cup of judgment. Oftentimes that idea of drinking of the cup is a picture of God's wrath. God's judgment. God says this was not your cup to drink, but you drank it anyway. It's an astounding picture which can really be echoed time and again and can be found in any number of, of uh, prophecies, can be found in any number of the Lord's judgments in Scripture going all the way forward, uh, all the way back to Je- Genesis and all the way forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ and really even forms the essence of the nature of those who will stand before the Lord one day and hear, depart from me, I never knew you. The essence of those who will stand before the Lord and whose names will not be found written in the book of life and will be cast into the lake of fire. The essence of that idea, the Lord looking and saying, this cup was not for you, but you have assuredly drank it. As we know that the lake of fire was a place reserved for the devil and his angels. God thus says that he has sworn by himself that Basra, the capital city of Edom, would be a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. When God says that he's swearing by himself, the idea is that God is making a direct promise. As is often the case, a person, when they are trying to add emphasis to the assurity of their promises, they will swear upon something. They will invoke the authority or the importance of some other figure to validate the seriousness of their promise or the assurity of their promise. So when people go to the courtroom and they place their hand on the Bible and they put their other hand up in the air and they say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, the idea there is that they are swearing and appeal, they are swearing on the Bible, appealing to God himself as their witness that they are telling the truth. And it used to be that that meant something, right? To people, they actually would be truly fearful to swear on a Bible if they were telling lies. Not so much anymore. But here's the thing. The implication is that if they're not telling the truth, then then may the authority of the Word of God or the authority of God Himself be brought to bear against them. Well, here's the thing. Uh, God has, there is no greater than God, right? So God, when He does this, He swears by Himself. At various points in the Scriptures, God makes such promises to men, and He swears that He will or He will not do something. And because, as as, uh, we can see in Hebrews... There is no greater than God because he could swear no, by no greater, Hebrews says. He swore 
by himself, uh, speaking specifically of God swearing to Abraham in Genesis 22. So he invokes his own faithfulness, his own power, his own greatness as the assurance of his claims. And as I mentioned, God does this in Genesis 22. He does this in Isaiah 45. He does it here in Jeremiah. Or he does it here in Jeremiah 49. He also did it in Jeremiah 22. So God swears by Himself that Basra would become this desolation. Verses 14 through 16. He says, "I have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent unto the heathen, saying, Gather ye together and come against her and rise up to the battle. For lo, I will make thee small among the heathen and despised among men. Thy terribleness hath deceived thee and the pride of thine heart. O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that holdest the height of the hill, the, uh, though thou shouldst make thy nest as high as the eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith the Lord. Jeremiah speaks here saying that he has heard a rumor of the Lord that God has stirred up the nation of Babylon against Edom, that the nation of Edom will be small, will be insignificant among the nations of the Gentiles, that they will never achieve any sort of aspirational greatness that they might have. God then tells them that they have been lifted up with pride to think that they are more than they are, to think that because they dwell on the rocks, that they could not be touched. Edom dwelt in the area, that rocky area that uh, is south of Israel, the area that we would typically understand today, Basra and Petra. Uh, Petra was not necessarily built in the days of Edom. We would understand Petra at least as we think of it today. If you Google the city of Petra, you'll see these beautiful um, um, temples that are carved into the rocks there in in the southern area of Canaan. Uh, That was probably not there in the days of Edom, although they dwelt in those very rocks. um, And Petra would become kind of the, the symbol of that region which most likely found their way uh, into this. They were, it was most likely carved during the time that we would look about in the intertestamental period, the time between Malachi and Matthew, when the Nabetians were in charge of that area. You can read about that a little bit in Daniel chapter 10 and 11 and uh, then compare that to history. So God says he would bring them down, verses 17 through 19. Also, Edom shall be a desolation. Everyone that goeth by it shall be astonished and shall hiss at all the plagues thereof, as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord. No man shall abide there, neither shall a son of man dwell in it. As with Moab and Ammon, so too with Edom. God likens their destruction to the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not cities that you want to be compared to in Scripture. And the point is that they would be desolate. Verses 20 to 22. Therefore hear the counsel of the Lord that he hath taken against Edom and his purposes that he hath purposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their habitations desolate with them. The earth is moved at the noise of their fall, at the cry of the, uh, uh, at the cry the noise thereof was heard in the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly as the eagle and spread his wings over Basra. And at at that day shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. We finish God's declaration against Edom in these verses. God calls for Edom to hear his counsel and his purposes, to listen when he declares these judgments. 
He says that the earth will be moved at the noise of their fall. So great would their fall be that the cry of the noise would be heard all the way to the Red Sea, indicating the extent of the effect that the fall would have. And this is interesting because what we see here is this idea that their effect would go to the Red Sea. Now that makes sense because they were in that southern region there, not too far from the Red Sea by any, um, by any uh, normal calculation. And that will come up particularly when we get into Jeremiah 50 because we're going to see almost this exact same language used as it relates to Babylon. Except it's not going to talk about the cry being heard from the Red Sea. It's going to be talking about the cry being heard around the world. And we'll talk about why uh, when we get there next time. So it would be that he, this he here being Nebuchadnezzar, would come and fly as an eagle, a bird often associated with Nebuchadnezzar in Scripture. And in that day, even Edom would feel nothing but terror. The mightiest in Edom, the mighty men, would be as the heart of a woman in her pangs, the idea being of sorrow and of pain. We continue now with Syria. And this is the region where it doesn't speak to the nation per se, it speaks to its capital called Damascus. Verses 23 through 27. God says concerning Damascus, Hamath is confounded in Arphad, for they have heard evil tidings. They are faint-hearted. There is sorrow in the sea, on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Damascus is waxed, fee- waxed feeble and turneth herself to flee. And fear hath seized on her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her as a woman in travail. How is the city of praise not left? The city of my joy. Therefore her young men shall fall in her streets. And all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will kindle, kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the, pl- the palaces of Ben-Hadad. We read in these verses about Damascus and its surrounding cities, Damascus being the capital of Syria. By this point, Damascus was only a shadow of its former glory. Jeremiah speaks to this as he considers her anguish and her sorrows. Speaking of those in Syria saying, How is the city of praise not left? The city of my joy. God promises that he'll kindle a fire on the walls of Damascus, meaning that the city will be burned, as would be expected. Indeed, there's no greater visible sign of conquering than of a city's walls ablaze. That is it for Damascus, for Syria. And we move on perhaps to the most obscure of the Gentile places mentioned, and that would be the people of Kedar and Hedzor. Verses 28 through 33. The Bible says concerning Kedar and concerning the kingdoms of Hedzor, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, shall smite. Thus saith the Lord, Arise ye, go up to Kedar and spoil the men of the east. Their tents and their flocks shall they take away. They shall take to themselves their curtains and all their vessels and their camels, and they shall cry unto them. Fear is on every side. Flee. Get you far off. Dwell deep, O ye inhabitants of Hedzor, saith the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath taken counsel against you and hath conceived a purpose against you. Arise, get you up unto the wealthy nation that dwelleth without care, saith the Lord, which have neither gates nor bars which dwell alone. And the camel shall be a booty, and the multitude of their cattle a spoil, and I will scatter into all winds them that are in the utmost corners, and I will bring their calamity from all sides thereof, saith the Lord. And Hazor shall be a dwelling for dragons and a desolation forever. 
There shall no man abide there, nor any son of man dwell in it. Kedar was, according to Genesis chapter 25, verse 13, a son of Ishmael, the brother of Isaac. The Kedarines were, just as God said, Ishmael's sons would be wild men, dwelling in tents, living not only the lifestyle of Bedouin Arabs, but living as predators and bandits. History tells us that the Kedarines were a people who were predatory in nature. They would travel from place to place. They were Bedouins. They would live in their tents. They never settled down, and they would raid. They would pillage. Uh, they would, they would um, uh, prey on, on others. That they had no walls or gates for their protection is evidenced in the prophecy that God calls them to flee. And he doesn't tell them, flee your cities. He says, your tents and your flocks will be taken away, right? So we see the fact that they were a Bedouin culture, that they were, that they were not a settled culture by the prophecy itself. He cries for them to flee. And he calls for them to flee in verse 31 to the wealthy nation that dwelleth without care. The idea here being that they go to find a place to live beyond the scope of Babylon's reach, either beyond the scope of Babylon's reach or make friends with Babylon. There's some differing interpretations as to what this city that dwells without care would be. God says he's going to scatter them in Hazor, not a city in Canaan, but the region within which the the Kedarines lived would become what God terms a dwelling for dragons. The word there, dragons, speaks of a great beast. It is variously translated as a land beast or a sea beast in our King James Bible. Uh, King James has translated it dragon, sea monster, serpent, and whale variously at various times in Scripture. The idea being that it would be home to beasts rather than to men. Just as in the other prophecies, we see God say that it would be, become a land that the Son of Man would not dwell in, right? One final word of the Lord in this chapter, and that is to Elam, beginning in verse 34. Verse 34, the Bible says this, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah king of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the chief of their might. And upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and will scatter them toward uh, all toward, excuse me, scatter them toward all those winds. There we go. And there shall be no nation whither the outcasts of Elam shall not come. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before them that seek their life. And I will bring evil upon them, even my fierce anger, saith the Lord. And I will send the sword after them Till I have consumed them, and I will set my throne in Elam, and will destroy from thence the king and the princes, saith the Lord. But it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, saith the Lord. The word of the Lord distinguishes itself here from many of the others in that it gives us a timetable for the prophecy that was set forth. This is the first time since Jeremiah 46 that we find a timetable given. To that end, we might assume that all of the prophecies to this point of Egypt and Philistia and Moab and Ammon and Edom and Damascus and Kedar happened perhaps in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. If that is indeed the case, then many of the prophecies of which Jeremiah spoke of, even in their essence, the idea of uh, Edom, uh, excuse me, of Moab and Ammon helping Babylon overthrow the nations, those would not necessarily have taken place Yet these would have been not just prophecies of their judgment, but prophecies of the thing that they were going to do that would bring about their judgment which is interesting. 
Here we see the fourth year, or the, the early years, excuse me, of Zedekiah, the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, probably some eight years or so after at least the prophecy in 46, if not all of the prophecies to this point. And Elam is the, point, the focal point of this prophecy. Elam, as best we know from Scripture, was one of the sons of Shem, a distinct relative of Abraham then in this regard. And so one of the Semitic people groups, as also were Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Kedar. Generally, we would consider them to be the Persian people, the people of Elam, with their chief city being Shushan, though the empire of Persia was naturally made up of more than just the Elamites. So as we look at the Elamites in history, we would generally understand them to have occupied the area of Persia, the area of Shushan, that would have been their city, before Persia became a great empire and then merged into the Medo-Persian Empire and then merged with Babylon and became that great Medo-Persian Empire uh, that we know it, which was made up of, of course, many different people groups, right? But the Elamites were one of those people groups and they were a Semitic people. So God speaks against them as well, vowing to scatter them to the winds and into every nation that they would fall before their enemies in response to their maltreatment of Israel. And the Lord specifically says here, that he would set his throne in Elam. And from there he would go about destroying the kings and princes. Here we see something unique, something which might give glimmers of a prophetic promise that extends well beyond the destruction of the nation of Persia or the people of Elam. That this region of the world would become the Lord's staging ground for his conquering of kings and princes. And that in the latter days, a reference that should always cause our ears to perk up and say, end times events, prophetic events, probably, po quite possibly at, at least, right? Not necessarily guaranteed. But we see this idea in the latter days, God would bring again the captivity of Elam. So it is that like with all the peoples of Shem, God, uh, the people of Elam would find a measure of mercy with the Lord. And this prophecy finds an interesting root of hope and of joy in the New Testament. So we see the Elamites. And the Elamites are judged by God greatly for their maltreatment of Israel. Whatever that was, we don't exactly know what that is. Perhaps it is that at this time the Elamites had bound themselves to some measure of, of assistance or aid to Babylon in the overthrow of Judah. But we find the Elamites come up in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood and preached to the multitudes the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit having fallen upon them, them speaking in tongues, the multitudes were amazed and marveled at the signs and wonders and the fulfillments of the prophecies of Joel. And as Peter spoke, the multitudes of the nations heard every man the words of Peter in their own tongue. And we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Sorry. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontius and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya and Cyrene and the strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And we find that on that day, having come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, were some who had rested in the region of Elam, who spoke the language of the Elamites, 
and so became among the first of the Gentile nations to hear in their own tongue the wonderful works of God. And that's pretty neat. And so we apply this evening in our application. I hope to hit on a couple of interesting points throughout our exposition. Of God's statements to Edom in verses 9 through 13, that those who place themselves in the path of God's judgment should not be surprised when those judgments come upon them. But we are so very human. We have short memories. We have poor attention spans. And we place ourselves in the path of judgment, but often think that we ought to be the exception to the rule, don't we? I find this so often in the jail that a person is presented with the, confronted with the, the gospel and particularly confronted with the not gospel part of the gospel. What I mean by that is the bad news before the good news, right? The part where they're sinners and they're separated from God and God must judge their sin because we're all sinners and we're separated from God and God must judge our sin. And they say, yeah, but I'm a good person. Yes, but you're sitting across from me and I'm not the one in the orange jumpsuit. Yes, but I'm a good person, they say. I'm a good person. Yes, I did this thing, but God knows the real me. Well, what part of you, if not the real you, puts you in that orange jumpsuit? Yeah, but I'm a good person. God should know that I really didn't mean it or I was busy or I was distracted. God, God, God would understand what I was going through at the time or that I was tired or, that, that the, or the circumstances that brought about the bad decisions that I've made. That circumstances being what they were, things just happened the way they happened. But it would have been different, except it wasn't, because I'm not that kind of person, even though that's the kind of person I am. And it's not just in the jail, is it? That's me. That's you. Well, yeah, but think of all the good things that I do. That's not what we're talking about at the moment. There are good things and there are bad things. There are moral things, there are immoral things. There are righteous things, there are unrighteous things. But we're not talking about a scale here, right? Enough righteous things outweigh the unrighteous things. We're talking about unrighteousness is unrighteousness and righteousness is righteousness and unrighteousness must be judged by a just judge. God said to Edom, the judgments that I had weren't for you. But if you're going to put yourself in God's way, then God's judgments are going to roll over you. This cup was not yours to drink, God says. But you drank it anyway, and now you have to suffer the consequences of drinking of that cup. And I think of the very essence, thus, of even the lake of fire, as I mentioned earlier, which was prepared, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, for the devil and his angels. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The lake of, of fire was not designed to be home for us. It was not designed to be home for man. That was not the purpose of its inception, of its creation. But man, in his pride, in his selfishness, in his determination to be his own God, has positioned himself for judgment. God is faithful. Faithful not only positively, and let us remember this, 
God is not only faithful in the positive. And this is what Job told his wife. Remember when he was in, in that place of mourning after everything had happened and she said, curse God and die. And Job said, you speak as the foolish women. Should we receive good of the Lord and not evil? Is God faithful just in one direction? Or is God faithful in multiple directions? God is faithful positively to bless and to sustain and to give salvation to those that will come to him. But God is also faithful negatively to separate himself from those who sin against him. For the wages of sin is death. We spoke just briefly this morning of the sowing and reaping principle. We know that God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. We speak and think briefly before I really do want to move into a gospel emphasis this evening and just think through this with me. But I speak briefly to you who are believers and remind you that God has regenerated us unto blessing, spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But if we drink of the cup of God's wrath, if we drink of the cup of sin, we have to incur the consequences of it. Thank God for His mercy. Thank God for His grace. But the wages of sin will be death. And we, God forbid that we should put ourselves in that position. The mercy of God, traced in this message to Moab and Ammon and Edom and Elam, seen on the day of Pentecost when the Elamites heard in their own tongue the wonderful works of God, seen in every age and in, gener- and in every generation that God has not made himself known in order that we might at the very least know the identity of the one who's going to judge us. Much to the contrary, God has made himself known so that we might know that he has made a way for us to flee from the wrath that is to come. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. And so it is that God has gone out of his way to bring about salvation in himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us that we are separated from God, separated from God through our own sinful choices, that though that cup of God's judgment, of God's wrath, of the separation of of man from God in a place of eternal conscious torment that was not made for man. Yet when we drank of the cup in Adam, we, we placed ourselves under that judgment. You have sinned. I have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God. That must be ours if we are going to have fellowship with him. And by reason of this sin, we are separated from God. And all those who die in that state of separation, as the gospel tells us, will spend eternity in that place of separation from God, conscious torment, known as the lake of fire. But God so loved the world. I hope you never tire of that line. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, hath quickened us together with him. 
but God so loved the world. By right of rebellion, we deserved the sinner's death. We drank of that cup. But God loves you and I too much not to make a path for redemption. That path cannot be through me. Cannot be through my efforts. It cannot be through my worthiness because I'm already a sinner. I'm already guilty, right? We're not talking about a scale here. Enough righteousness is going to outweigh guilt. No. Once I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Someone's got to pay. And if my guilt is not paid for, then God is not just. God cannot just ignore my sin because God is just. And that means I need someone to pay. I need someone to take my place, to bear my guilt. Enter Jesus. The Word of God made flesh, 100% man, 100% God, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Ghost, not inheriting the sin of Adam, born under the law, born into a sin-cursed world, but who never once sinned, never once missed the mark, never once fell short of the glory of God, who gave his life on the cross for me, who gave his life on the cross for you. And on the cross, the Father placed your guilt upon his Son. On the cross, the Father made his Son sin for you, securing forgiveness for every man, for every woman, thus opening the door, paving the path, making that way clear so that if any man will enter, he will find redemption, remission of sins, and eternal life. But we know Jesus didn't stay dead. Indeed, three days later, he rose again, affirming that everything he promised he could do, he would do. Breaking the chains of sin, giving me a new life in himself, giving me of his spirit, and in the end, granting me eternal life. That Jesus rose from the dead, I know that everything Jesus said he can do, he will do, if I have received it. See, a gift purchased, if not accepted, is no good to anyone. If I took this Bible and I paid in full for it and I wrote your name in it and I handed it out to you and I said, this is your Bible. You can have it. And you looked at me and said, wow, that's great. You paid that, you, you, you paid that price. You wrote my name in it. That Bible's for me. That's wonderful. And you walked out of this church building and you didn't grab it. And you went home and you told friends, family. Hey, Pastor Wickler bought me a Bible and he paid for it and he's not asking for anything in return and he's put my name into it. And they say, oh, great, where is it? And you say, well, I didn't take it. Well, if you didn't take it, it doesn't matter if your name's in it. It doesn't matter if, it, if, if, if it's been purchased for you. If you don't accept it, it's not going to do you any good. It has no value to you. It's not really yours if you don't take it. The gift of eternal life has been purchased for you already on the cross. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the entire world. 1 John 2, 2. It's intended for you. But if you don't receive it, it's not yours. So the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that's not a mental thing, is it? Most of us in here who know the gospel, you know that it's not a mental thing, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. It's not just a mind thing. It's not a head knowledge of the facts of what Jesus has done, of Jesus' life, of Jesus' death. 
It is a fundamental commitment to the message of the gospel that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself. You have to believe that. You have to know that. You have to be fundamentally committed to that reality. That Jesus bore your sin on the cross and paid a debt that you could never pay. You don't just know that. You have to believe that. You have to fundamentally commit yourself to the fact that Jesus did something for you that you have no means or capacity by which to do yourself. That Jesus rose again in victory over death and over sin. Not just that you know it, but that you truly believe that Christ is alive. That he claimed victory over sin and over death and over hell. And that your only hope of relationship with God is to fall before the mercy of God and claim Jesus as that hope for salvation and eternal life. That is what it means to be born again. And all of those who will from the heart believe on Jesus Christ, the scriptures assure us, will be saved. In a chapter of judgment, couched between several more chapters of judgment, we see, particularly in this chapter with Ammon and with Edom and with Elam and with Kedar, those shadows of mercy. And one of those shadows looms larger than the rest as we considered when the Elamites heard the wonderful works of God in their own language on the day of Pentecost. Words which are the essence of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Words without which we would be as those who have no hope. But words which having them and knowing them and receiving them for ourselves bring about the promises of God, the new creation, the born again regeneration into the kingdom of the living God. Given of God's spirit, empowered by his spirit to serve him. Everything that we have in Christ, all of that which brings joy and which brings peace and which brings contentment is streams of mercy never ceasing, which call for songs of loudest praise. And so, though most of us know the gospel this evening, though most of us have received that gospel with some exceptions among us this evening, Yet it's my prayer that as we think through what happened in these chapters, as we think through those shadows of mercy, if we think through even that statement to Edom that the cup was not for them, but it was drunk of anyway, and yet God calls them to repentance and to mercy, so too we would remember that day when by grace you were saved through faith. Don't let that become stale. Don't let that just become a dusty memory in your mind. Let that be your daily creed. Let that be the daily renewal. Let that be the essence of your drive. Let that day, that day when you pass from death unto life, be bubbled up in your heart to be the very essence of life. I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth. In me. Is that you this evening? Are you living in the realities of the tremendous mercy that has been shown to you in Christ? May we never forget it. May we live in light of it every day. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.